And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. On the Skype line with us today is our friend, Dr. Peter Hammond. Peter, it's an honor to have you on with us today. It's great to be with you. Thank you so much, Dan. Peter, when I read about you on LinkedIn, <laughs> one of many places, the list is long. You're your founder, your director of Frontline Fellowship, the Reformation Society, African Christian Action, and William Carey Bible Institute. Um, significantly, you're a missionary. You've been behind enemy lines, distributing Bibles. Tell us just one minute about yourself to refresh our memory. Yes, I had the privilege of being brought up in Rhodesia, uh, a wonderful paradise-like country, and um, I've lived through eight wars, three revolutions, um, ministered in 38 countries across Africa. I was converted to Christ from a very secular family. We never went to church or prayed or uh, had the Bible in our home, um, but I was converted at age 17 from a secular family called to missions, and for the last 40 years, it's been my privilege to be a missionary to persecuted Christians in restricted access areas, and what a joy and privilege to so I've been in Africa all my life, born 1960. I'm now 62 years old. Well, I know that you're a very busy guy, and when we were off mic, you were also mentioning that you spend time with your grandchildren and you do outdoors things with them, so that, that keeps you very active yet. Oh, yes. Uh, I've got three very active little grandsons, and uh, all uh, all my four children and uh, three grandchildren live uh, in our home. And, uh, uh, yes, we do hiking, climbing, mountain climbing, explorations in the forest to get them out to adopting animals and planting trees and neighborhood cleanups and all sorts of things. And, of course, outreaches, literature distribution. So it's great. It's fun. And I must say, yes, my my grandsons keep us uh, very uh, healthy. My wife said frequently, boys are a lot less drama than girls, but much harder to keep alive. <laughs> and that is a fact. Our grandsons get into trouble very quickly, and they, they love anything dangerous and reckless. I know that you thought the world of your Lenora, and she passed not long ago. And uh, we grieved with you at her passing, and um, I often think of you and... Hang in there, my brother. It is very hard, but uh, I've got much more duties still to do, uh, much as I would have preferred that um, I went before my wife. But uh, she finished a race with joy. She yes. she um, can say she kept the faith. She finished the race. She accomplished things. Obviously, God's still got things for me to do and learn. Amen. Yes, I, I think so. Well, today we want to tap your knowledge in an area that is an important area. It has to do with warfare. It has to do with two competing groups in the world, and that is uh, Russia and Ukraine. The gravest part to us, I believe, Peter, is that there are dear Christians in both of these places. So maybe we'll start there. As we begin listening to you talk about Ukraine, can you talk, first of all, about the Christians in both places? Yes, I've got many Ukrainian friends. I've got many Russian friends. I've got 
friends who are missionaries in Ukraine. I've got friends who are missionaries in Russia. Mm. And I feel very torn. Um, I had the privilege of traveling throughout the whole of Eastern Europe multiple times with my father-in-law, Reverend Bill Bathman. Bill Bathman spent 67 years ministering in especially the communist world and, and restricted access areas, and especially all over Eastern Europe and many beloved friends there. And uh, so I've learned a lot from the Ukrainians and from Russians over what they suffered under communism, particularly yes. under the brutal dictatorship of Stalin and Ceausescu and oh my. Uh, but uh, so um, first of all, I don't know how many people realize that in all of Europe, the country with the most Christians is Russia. Mm. And uh, I had Patrick Johnson, uh, founder of Operation World, the missiologist who uh, has completed completed eight different editions of uh, Operation World, 15 million copies print, which is the intercessory handbook in every country in the world. And Patrick Johnson asked me some years ago in our boardroom in Livingston House, Peter, which country in Europe do you think has got the most amount of born-again, Bible-believing, evangelical Christians? And I guessed wrong. <laughs> and he said it's Russia. And uh, wow. second largest, I guessed wrong again, it's Ukraine. Ukraine. Third largest. Romania. Well, those three countries all have one thing in common. They all used to be behind the Iron Curtain. Mm. They endured decades of persecution, decades of communist oppression and atheist indoctrination. And yet the strongest churches, the largest percentage of Christians, the largest numbers of Christians in all of Europe are Russia, Ukraine, Romania, countries yeah. uh, that, you know, it just also shows you that the complacency, the materialism, the seduction of Hollywood and the decadence in the West has been more deadly to the church than even the violent communism and yes. the virulent atheist indoctrination. So, um, you know, we can praise God for what he has done behind what used to be the Iron Curtain. But how tragic that Christians are fighting one another in this hideous, totally unnecessary, completely avoidable war. That is so true. I kind of feel that the war could have been avoided. We heard warnings from Russia saying, we don't want NATO coming close to us. We don't want that. And um, it's like nobody listened to them. Oh, yes. I don't know how many people know or remember uh, that um, Vladimir Putin from 1999, when he first became president of Russia, attempted to join NATO. In fact, I've got a picture of um, George Bush Jr., uh, shaking hands with Vladimir Putin in front of a massive NATO um, banner, uh, which has got the Russian flag uh, on it, uh, and uh, next to the NATO flag was surrounded by all the different flags of the other NATO affiliates. And in two, this is date, dated on the big banner 2002. And in 2002, Russia made the first steps towards becoming uh, an official partner of NATO, which is a step towards becoming a full member of NATO. And Russia didn't stop being interested in joining NATO. NATO got cold and uh, rebuffed them. And so imagine having Russia as an ally of NATO against Red China. I mean, that, yes. at a time like this, it uh, would be extremely uh, ideal. And yet, for some reason, NATO decided to rebuff Russia and continue to expand multiple times and adding 30 more members uh, to NATO since the Cold War ended. Uh, not only incorporating all of the old Warsaw Pact allies of the old Soviet Union, but including countries that used to be part of the old Soviet Union. And uh, as Vladimir Putin said, we haven't moved an inch towards NATO or the EU, but they've been moving in five waves towards us. 
and they're right on our doorstep and now they're in our back door and Ukraine is just a step too far. And so considering how America responded to Russia attempting to place missiles and military bases in Cuba back in 1962, the Cuban Missile Crisis, which was probably um, the only comparison to the situation we've got now where we literally talk about the possibility, the real possibility of nuclear war on two fronts, mind you. I mean, <laughs> we're talking about China potentially invading Taiwan and uh, America coming against uh, China on that. And China's a nuclear-armed uh, country and, and quite a superpower in its own right. And, of course, Russia, which has got even more uh, nuclear weapons than America at this moment, including the hypersonic ones. So uh, why one would be wanting to poke the bear and the dragon at the same time and uh, having rebuffed Russia as a potential ally when they were all open to it, uh, this does seem a bit insane. But, but in addition to that... Um, uh, you know, it was completely reasonable that America didn't want Russian military bases and missiles uh, on its doorstep in Cuba. That's and right. That was completely reasonable, Monroe Doctrine and all that. Uh, and Russia's got the right to also object to Ukraine, which is a very integral part of its economy, uh, food supply and all the rest of it. Uh, in fact, Ukraine's one of the biggest wheat supplies in the world. And I might add the sanctions on Ukraine right now is hurting us in Africa. 32 countries in Africa depend on Ukraine and Russia for food, mm. massive amounts of food and fertilizer, especially wheat. And uh, uh, we've got massive famine coming in Africa because of either the sanctions or the war in Ukraine, Russia. So it's even affecting us here in Africa. Yeah. Yeah. It, we have leaders in our country right now. And I hope I don't get in trouble saying this, but it's like they're insane. Peter, they're insane. I mean, who would who would conduct the country this way? And so I, I'm not being um, siding with one party or the other with this statement, but this is insanity. You, you talk about poking the bear. We don't need to do that. And we don't our, – our larger concern, to be very honest, is the CCP, I think. Yes. Yes. No, I, I feel the same. I, I think the biggest threat, um, the real – existential military and revolutionary threat to the world at this stage is the Chinese Communist Party. Yes. Uh, we're, not, we're not against the Chinese people, but, but right. the Chinese Communist Party um, is one of the worst governments on earth, and it's one of the best armed, and it's, it's incredibly harsh. And what they're doing to the people right now, including in Hong Kong, and they're still going berserk on this lockdown lunacy, and uh, uh, the people in uh, China are still being masquerade mandated, yes. forcibly vaccinated herded cities of millions of people locked down and locked down their little cubicles, I might add, in these high-rise apartments. And you can literally hear on social media the cries of rage and frustration of millions of people shouting at the same time uh, their objections. And uh, we've been told that what's being written in Chinese graffiti all over on these uh, COVID testing sites on is, give me liberty or give me death, wow. which I think should resonate with a few Americans. But nobody's heard that a cry in China since Tiananmen Square in 1989. Oh, yeah. And the, the objections, the, the internal uh, resistance and protest against the Chinese Communist Party is unprecedented. And right now, China's got a massive um, economic crisis in their own country, as you'd expect from all the lockdowns. Uh, but also they've got rising opposition. And the danger is that uh, Chairman Xi, who's in a very, very weak position right now, might choose a war with Taiwan to distract his people from his domestic and economic failures and oppressions at home. 
tyrants have done this frequently through the years. Mm. And so at a time like this, you sort of wish that you could have Russia as an ally to keep China in their place. And instead, both have been alienated. And for what purpose? I've got friends on the ground in Ukraine who communicate with me. and, And of course, as you can imagine, it's a huge country. So there's very different views. I, I, I don't get just one position, but mm-hmm. but for example, uh, just take uh, some Ukrainians uh, who are in eastern Ukraine. So they're in the Donbass region. Yes. And uh, I've had letters from them from people I've been their homes, friends, saying, you know, you know, hurrah for President Putin. At last, somebody's standing up for us. For eight years, <laughs> we've been rocketed and strafed and under artillery bombardments. Really? Thousands of us citizens, over fourteen thousand Russian-speaking Ukrainians. Killed by the Ukrainian military over the last eight years. Nobody in the world cared. And at last, somebody's heard our plea and they've come in to help us and brought in the medicines and the food and the aid that we need. And and, uh, and they show me pictures of, of literally people dancing with Russian flags in the street, welcoming the Russians as liberators coming into uh, the Donbass region, like republics of uh, Luhansk and Donetsk, who declared their independence from Ukraine in 2014 and seceded. And, uh, you know, their perspective is... Putin's the savior, and uh, Ukraine uh, are, are the enemy, and um, Vladimir Zelensky is uh, wicked and evil. And, of course, then I've got some other folks who are, are in the western Ukraine who see Putin as a horrible invader and a sure. new Hitler, and uh, uh, Ukraine's trying to defend themselves. So, okay, that's another perspective. And then uh, an, an American missionary who I've known for many years, I've known well over 30-odd years, 34 years, and uh, he's been a missionary for about 20 years in Ukraine, right up in the north, he, right in the uh, line of the original uh, advance of the Russian forces. And he said a lot of the bombardment of civilian centers was being done by the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians were bombarding the civilian centers and blaming it on the Russians. Really? He says that too? Because I, I had heard that that may have been happening. That's interesting. Yeah. So, you know, that's like he's got no political extra grind. And, no. and he's an American at that point. And so I've heard so many divergent points, but the one thing that's crystal clear to me is there's millions of Christians in Ukraine and yes. millions of Christians in Russia. Yes. And we're talking about vast amounts of Christians in the Russian army and in the Ukraine army. There's chaplains on the Russian army. I hope they're on the Ukrainian side too. Uh, but I've seen pictures sent to me of the Russian army on the knees praying, and I've seen pictures of Ukrainians in their cities on the oh, knees praying uh, for the country too. So, so this is this reminds me of the First World War, That's where right. Christians on both sides were fighting one another. That's right, uh, which included my relatives, and I had relatives on both sides <laughs> being uh, hammered. And um, I, I mean, I've I've been to the graves of scores of Hammonds just in Belgium alone, wow. uh, uh, planted around Ypres and. Uh, and I'm sorry to say, Lindemans, who's my mother's side of the family, on the other side. Uh, and uh, you just think, why were Christians fighting one That's another? Right. That's right. That's right. There's much bigger enemies. We've got more in common than we have against us. And and, and as a as a missionary who's been a missionary towards us, I'm no pacifist. I know there's a time to fight. No, of course not. And uh, but and of course there's a time to fight, and it's a defensive fight. But but when I look at what's gone on Ukraine. This was an avoidable war. And we know that Russia has been warning since 2008 when it first started talking about mm-hmm. making Ukraine part of NATO. And, and Russia said, no, under no circumstances, don't even think about it, unacceptable. And they warned again and again, and they just kept getting ignored. And, uh, 
And as recently as January of this year, 2022, Vladimir Putin publicly sought an assurance from American President Joe Biden that no American missiles would be placed in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. It sounds like, well, gee, how easy is that to yeah, just right, say we won't put right. missiles in Ukraine? Like Russia even had to say under Brezhnev, okay, we'll take our missiles out of Cuba. Um, you know, it diffused, <laughs> it took the world back from the brink. And Biden refused to give such an assurance. As recently as February 2020, Putin it's unbelievable. requested a meeting with Biden to discuss the Ukrainian crisis. Biden refused. Apparently, he had something more important to do. Uh, and the USA and its NATO allies pushed ahead with integrating Ukraine into the Western alliance. Now, that wasn't particularly good. Uh, but even after Russia launched what they called their special military operation to mm-hmm. Ukraine, President Putin offered a peace proposal after one week, which, if accepted, could have ended the war on week one. Ah. And the conditions were just three. And they weren't particularly radical. They were just the status quo, actually. Number one, Ukrainian neutrality, no joining of NATO. Number two, acknowledge Crimean as Russian, which it had always been since the mm-hmm. 1700s, since they liberated from the Turks, uh, the Ottoman Empire. I mean, it had never not been Russian. And even when uh, officially part of Ukraine, it was still Russian. And it's got 90-something percent Russian uh, demographically and linguistically. And they voted to be Russian. And the Russian army never left. There. Even when Ukraine became independent in 1991, the Russian army still co- controlled and occupied uh, Crimea. And it's the main naval base and all the rest. Uh, so that's not even a change. And number three, recognition of the independence of the two separatist republics in the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine, which is Luhansk and Donetsk, um, which had broken away in 2014 when the American State Department sponsored at the rate of billions of dollars the overthrow of the elected government. And the first thing the unelected government in 2014 did was abolish Russian as a medium of, of uh, education in the school so that the Second language, minority language rights in Ukraine were abolished, which is, why would you do that? And when the Russian majority areas, such as Eastern Ukraine, which, by the way, had uh, never been part of Ukraine in the past, but Lenin forced them to be part of Ukraine Hmm. uh, in 1922. And Crimea, by the way, was never Ukrainian, but was just arbitrarily made Ukrainian by the Soviet dictator Khrushchev, Nikita Khrushchev, in 1954, without a referendum, without um, any, uh, I mean, just dictatorship. And so when you look at these regions that want secession, they're countries where, uh, parts of the country, where the Russians are the majority demographically and linguistically, and who voted for secession in 2014 anyway. And so these are not radical requirements. These were just maintaining the status quo as of February 2022. And you would have thought, isn't it better to just accept that and then the war could have been over and uh, at week one, and how many tens of thousands of lives could have been saved? In fact, I don't know how many have died, but um, it's tens of thousands for sure. In the weeks and months since then, we had six months after the war began, and there is no way that Ukraine has any realistic chance of defeating the Russian military. They're no. ten times larger than their own forces. So I think there's an unwinnable war. It's an avoidable war, and uh, it's it's an unnecessary war. I I, I don't know why from the perspective of a historian and a missionary who loves the people of Ukraine yes. and loves the people of yes. Russia, uh, sooner or later, they're going to have to make peace with Russia. Why not do it now? Why must tens of thousands more people suffer before the inevitable is acknowledged? Yes, yes. 
Today we're talking with Dr. Peter Hammond. He's a missionary. He knows a lot about the world. And uh, Peter, can you tell us a little bit about, I heard uh, multiple times that there were biological warfare laboratories in Ukraine. There's no doubt about it. It's no longer a, a theory. Even the United States Department of Defense has had to acknowledge before a sent oversight committee that yes, They've maintained numerous biological warfare laboratories and research facilities in Ukraine where their personnel enjoy diplomatic status. Do you know that American personnel working in these various biological warfare laboratories and the Pentagon's admitted in June to funding 46 biological research facilities in Ukraine over the last 20 years? 46. 46. And there's 11 there right now still being funded. And the USA has provided officially $350 million dollars. $350 million to fund over 1,850 projects for this so-called Science and Technology Center in Ukraine, STCU, uh, which is producing biological um, uh, warfare weapons. And by the way, it's been proven that tens of of thousands of people have gotten infected and hundreds of people have died of all kinds of exotic diseases near and around these biological warfare laboratories, mm. of which they say only about three have any kind of the safety requirements that um, fit the required safety criteria to undertake the kind of dangerous research they're doing. So, interestingly, the Ukraine government has no jurisdiction over these laboratories, and all American personnel working in these laboratories are having diplomatic status, so they can they can come in and out the country without any Customs searching, their baggage and so on is is sacrosanct. Uh, Isn't this bizarre? It's terrible. It reminds me of the opposite of the golden rule, where if you don't want something done to you, don't do it to the other person. But uh, it seems like our our corrupt politicians uh, are fine with having this this lab way over there, way away from their their, uh, gated neighborhoods. And if it leaks, who cares? I, I've seen so much corruption. And you've you've written a little bit about the corruption in the arms trade. Can you talk to that? Yes, but actually, before we go there, let me just say a bit more about the corruption dealing with the biological warfare. Yes, laboratories. yes. A certain senator for Illinois, Barack Hussein Obama, before he became president, helped negotiate a deal to build a biological research laboratory in the Ukrainian city of Odessa. Isn't that interesting? Wow. Then then there's, uh, what's the chances that four major American politicians would have sons working in the oil industry in Ukraine, uh, earning the tens of billions? And we're talking about Pelosi, Biden, Kerry, and uh, who was the American uh, um, candidate against Obama, presidential candidate? Uh, Oh, yes. uh, Romney. Romney. Yes, Mitt Romney. So those four all have sons uh, getting massive corrupt deals of tens of millions each um, from working in the oil industry in Ukraine all at the same time. Obviously a coincidence. And then you've got Hunter Biden has his Meta Boita company, uh, which uh, is financed by him. He's got this Rosemont Seneca partnership, which is in partnership with the Communist Party of China <laughs> and with the Chinese People's Liberation Army. It's like you can't make this stuff up. No, and they've got an $18 million federal contract for uh, some of the biological warfare uh, laboratories, research facilities in Ukraine. I mean, it's just, and this is in partnership with the Communist Party of China and the People's Liberation Army of China and American taxpayers paying for this. 
And then next question is, why would you have biological warfare laboratories in Ukraine? Well, probably because they would be illegal in America. Yes. Well, today we're talking with Dr. Peter Hammond. He's very aware of what's going on in the world, and he's traveled thousands upon thousands of miles in missionary work behind enemy lines. Peter, we've got two minutes left. Let's wrap up our thoughts with uh, something positive, because we serve a God who is over all. Yes, indeed. Well, praise God that uh, God is able to make uh, all things work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. (laughs) And souls are being saved, and there's wonderful work going on there. We've got a friend, a good friend, who's actually the granddaughter of uh, the previous president of South Africa, President P.W. Brought, and and, uh, Shanna um, is uh, a missionary who's trained through a Great Commission course, and she has learned Ukrainian. She's worked in Ukraine. She's been uh, before and during the conflict. And when we asked her, are you coming back? She said, no, can't. So much need there. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of great work being done on the ground. The Slavic Gospel Association is doing phenomenal work. Uh, the uh, Samaritan's Purse is doing magnificent work. There's South African missionaries there. There are American missionaries there. I think we can praise God for what God is doing in spite of this evil and insanity. But remember, blessed are the peacemakers. And in Luke 14, our Lord said, when you go to war, first consider whether the man with 10,000 can meet him who's coming against with 20,000. Rather, while he's still a great way off, send a delegation and ask for conditions of peace. And so the Lord calls us to count the cost. And I think we, if you do a cost-benefit analysis and a cost-risk analysis, there's no doubt that it would be better to work for peace than to continue with an unnecessary, unwinnable war. Yeah. Well put from our brother, Dr. Peter Hammond. And Peter, if someone would like to get a hold of you, how could they go about doing that? My personal email is peter at frontline.org.za. So it's peter at F-R-O-N-T-L-I-N-E, peter at frontline.org.za. And our website, www.frontlinemissionsa.org. And the SA short for South Africa. So frontlinemissionsa.org. You'll see pictures, articles on Ukraine, several articles on it, and uh, what we know about the situation. So, yes, we'd love to hear from you. Peter at frontline.org.za. And I want to thank you, Peter, for agreeing to this interview. There's a big time zone difference between where I am on the East Coast and there in South Africa. What time of the day is it right now? Yes, it's after 10 p.m. at night. I've already been uh, through a full day and uh, (laughs) been with my grandsons and taking them out tonight. And and by the way, we are on our first day of spring officially here in South Africa. Not that it feels like it. We're still wrapped up in our woolies and and quite cold and wet. (laughs) Dr. Peter Hammond, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Dan. God bless. And dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer.